As uh, Carl said, uh, Ben was supposed to speak today, and he's under the weather, and uh, you're stuck with me today. I was, wasn't supposed to speak again until October 7th, so I had to move things up a little bit. So if I'm a little rough today, I apologize in advance, so I trust that you'll bear with me. Uh, last week, uh, we actually started talking about the spiritual gifts. Luke spoke on prophecy and exhortation, and he did an excellent job. I listened to the audio and he did a good job of combining those two gifts. Um, I'm going to do it a little bit different today. I'm going to just talk about three of them separately. But the reason we're talking about the spiritual gifts is that we want to inform you about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to each and every believer. And hopefully at the end of the series, we're going to have a test that you can take, a spiritual inventory test, where you can get a better idea of what your gifts are so that you can better serve uh, the body here at uh, Calvary and around the world. So, um, today I'm going to be talking about, uh, oh, before I go, remind everybody what the definition of spiritual gifts are, and that is a spiritual gift is a supernatural ability or a natural talent given by God to every believer for the purpose of serving others under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So that's what to keep in mind. It's an ability given by God to serve others under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, today I'm going to be talking about the giving, teaching, or giving administration and teaching. And when I do that, I'm going to give a definition. I'm going to give some examples from the Bible of where people had demonstrated those abilities. I'll uh, say a few other thoughts about it, and then I'll give some uh, possible suggestions for how those gifts could be used in the church. So starting off, uh, and you have some fill-ins in your bulletin, is uh, the first one today is giving. And uh, just simple fill in the blank is uh, giving is to share what material resources you have with generosity and cheerfulness without the thought of return. It is to share what material resources you have with generosity and cheerfulness without thought of return. So keep that in mind. This gift is mentioned uh, as a gift just once in scriptures. Uh, Carl just read it, Romans chapter 12. And some examples of giving, uh, we have, and there are many, but I just picked a few. This one was in Luke chapter 7, the Roman centurion. uh, He had donated large sums of money to the town of Capernaum to build a synagogue. And evidently he was rich and he was very generous. And uh, the story there is that uh, uh, his servant was sick and he had asked for Jesus to come and heal And he had sent messengers to Jesus, and the people that were representing the centurion said that this centurion was a good man. He loved the nation of Israel. Uh, He built this synagogue, and he probably, if it's not too unreasonable, he probably recognized that the God of Israel was the true God. So he wanted to be a part of the worship, and he had this, uh, um, this is just a drawing of what the synagogues typically look like. They uh, concluded this based on archaeological finds. But as you can tell, it's not a very small price. It's, it's quite an investment. So this guy was, was very, very generous. And probably an interesting note is in the Capernaum, uh, the Bible tells us that's where Jesus had grown up. That was his hometown. And Jesus may have actually worshipped in the same synagogue as uh, the centurion. So anyway, this guy uh, felt very generous. He donated uh, money to build a synagogue. Another example of giving is uh, Zacchaeus. Uh, He was a tax collector in Luke chapter 19, and he wanted to meet Jesus, and he scurried around and finally met Jesus and spent some time with Jesus. 
And after encountering Jesus, he said, I will give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have offended anybody, I will pay them back four times. Now, as a tax collector, the way he made his money was overcharging people for their taxes, and the money that he made, the extra money was his. He had to give the taxes to Rome, but he just came clean and said, hey, I, I like just Jesus, like what, like what Jesus is about, so I'm going to be very generous. And probably a, a truer definition or example of uh, the gift of the Spirit, this is in Acts chapter 2, uh, after the Holy Spirit had come upon uh, believers, is that uh, many people were selling their possessions and property and distributing to all who had need. So that was a definite act of giving that was directed under the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, f- the reason I mention these three is that a common theme that I see in all these is that whenever somebody, whenever somebody has a meaningful encounter with God, not only does it touch their heart, it touches their wallet. So one of the things that you can think about is uh, for yourself, you know, am I a giver or am I a taker? And to be a giver, you don't have to be wealthy. Jesus uh, pointed out the poor widow who gave the two mites at the temple, where she gave more, not monetarily, but in terms of she gave all that she had as opposed to the rich people who were giving out of their abundance. Giving can be done also not only on an individual basis, such as the widow, uh, the poor widow, but also can be done as a group effort. In Exodus chapter 36, uh, Moses was asking the Israelites for donations so they could build the tabernacle, uh, which was going to be their center of worship. Um, And the people responded as a group, and they responded so generously that Moses had to say, stop, we got enough, please don't give anymore. But I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day that one of the announcements that Carl gives is, hey, you know, don't give anymore, we got enough, you know. But, um, so we'll, we'll keep that uh, thought in our minds. But um, giving can also trigger greater results or bigger things. A single act of giving can be a catalyst for um, who knows what. And an example of that is in John chapter 6. Jesus was teaching to the multitudes. They were out in the wilderness. They were hungry. Jesus said, hey, what are we going to feed these people? And a young boy gave his lunch, which was a couple loaves and fishes, and Jesus took that. He blessed it and multiplied it and fed over 5,000 people. So a single act can generate uh, big results. And another example of giving that can produce big results, and again, I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 2, where the believers gave uh, a lot of their possessions, let me just read this to you. I highlighted a few words. I just wanted to, you, know, you can think about that. In that passage, it says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Okay, Peter had just preached. Many people came to Christ, and the church was starting to grow. Everybody kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as everyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I highlighted the words uh, all and everyone because Prior to this, as I used to read this passage, I used to think that the sharing 
uh, and the needs that they were meeting were within the church. But that's not what it says. It says all and everyone. So the church was very generous. The early church was very generous in giving to everyone that had need. And that accounts for the fact that that's why they were finding favor with all the people outside of the church. And the result was that many people were coming to faith in Christ. So question, this is a rhetorical question, is how much is a soul worth? What would you give to have a family member or a loved one come to know Christ? You see, giving is unnatural. Uh, it's contrary to human nature. We're all selfish and we're all takers at heart. So giving in some ways is almost supernatural. And when it occurs, people take notice. Because giving, I believe, is an evidence of a transformation of a new nature that takes place in your heart. Several years ago, I was taking a course, a ministry-related course at a different church, and uh, I forget what the book was, but uh, one of the assignments was to come up with a list of 10 people that you knew in your life that had an impression upon you, that uh, you respected, you thought highly of. So I sat down and I wrote down my list, and then I asked myself, well, what was it about this list of people that, why did, why did these people make the list? And it was very obvious, and, and it was, I, took me by surprise, was those were all people that had generously given to me in some way, shape, or form. I, I, you know, I didn't ask for anything, it was just something that they prompted, they just gave it to me. And it made an impression, it earned my respect, and I never forgot about it. So if you want to make an impression on somebody, be a giver. So how can giving help the church? Well, we can give in different ways, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Our time, we can help serve here by perhaps greeting or teaching Sunday school, uh, transporting people that need rides, or, you know, we've been trying to figure out a cleaning day for the church. Talents, uh, people that sing, people that lead worship, people that play instruments, tech support, these are all gifts that uh, people can give. And of course, treasures. Uh, money makes the world go around. We have to pay rent for the facility. We have to pay for the utilities. Uh, we're looking for a full-time pastor. We're going to need money for a salary for that. There's missions to support. Please don't forget Sam Coe and his family that were with us earlier this year. And of course, there's benevolence. There's always people that have needs. So there's always a place, uh, if you give, um, there's a need to fill. And actually, that's the purpose of this spiritual gift, is to meet needs that exist. And perhaps the best position in a church to serve, if you got the gift of giving, is uh, if you have a benevolence committee or whatever. Because these people tend to be sensitive to the needs of others and they tend to be very generous, and they may actually have a discerning spirit to determine whether it's a true need or a false need. But people who have the gift of uh, giving also are very hospitable. Um, they have a servant's heart, and they also uh, tend to show mercy to those people who are in need. Now, we can all be generous, and it's a lifestyle that needs to be cultivated because at, at heart we're all um, self-centered to a, a large extent. And whether or not you have the gift of giving, and giving is something that we should do. So in terms of being generous or being generous or having generosity, just two questions for you. One is, how generous are you? And how are you generous? In what ways are you generous? So just something to think about. Are you a generous person? 
The next gift is administration. So the next fill-in on your bulletin, uh, the definition of this gift is to steer the body toward the accomplishment of God-given goals by planning, organizing, and supervising others. To steer the body toward the accomplishment of God-given goals by planning, organizing, and supervising others. And this gift is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let me give you a little Greek lesson here. Uh, the word uh, is kubernesis, and it means to steer, to guide, or mentor. And the word closely related to this in the Greek is a word that they use for, to describe a helmsman. It's a person who steers a boat. So the gift here is someone who is able to steer or guide or direct a, a group of people in a particular direction to achieve uh, a goal. But working with people uh, can be difficult because people sometimes don't pay attention, they're distracted, or sometimes people just kind of have their own agenda. Uh, so it takes a lot of effort uh, to, uh, to coordinate a group of people, and I want to show you a video um, in, in a few minutes, but uh, it's kind of a lot like herding cats, so if you could show the video, I'd appreciate it. This man right here is my great-grandfather. He's the first cat herder in our family. Herding cats. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half-wild short hairs, well, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done. I got this one this morning, right here. And if you look at his face, it's it just ripped to shreds, you know? You see the movies, you, you hear the stories, it's... I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. EDS, managing the complexities. I thought you might appreciate that uh, little humor at this point in the message. But dealing with people can be very difficult, so it's, uh, it's like herding cats. Uh, the best example that I could find in the Bible uh, of someone who had the gift of administration was the man named uh, uh, Nehemiah. And if you understand the story or remember the story of Nehemiah, uh, I'll give you a little bit of history. Uh, the Babylonians came in, they conquered uh, Judah, they, they tore down the walls of Jerusalem, they carried many people away to captivity from uh, 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 Judah. And several years later, the Persians took over the Babylonians, and we find Nehemiah somehow is a servant in the court of the king of Persia. He's a wine taster. He's a, uh, that's someone who was there to protect the king. Somebody tried to poison the king. But he's a very close friend, close advisor uh, to the king. And while he is in this uh, position, he gets word that uh, the walls of Jerusalem are in bad shape and... My clicker's not working. It's Sunday morning and I'm teaching. What else is new? <laughs> Need a little prompt there in the back. Um, anyway, Nehemiah, um, I don't know whether he forgot about the condition of, of Jerusalem or he, uh, now it's coming in full. He learns about the condition or is reminded of the condition and it really strikes his heart. So then he prays for three months. And then he finally has the courage to talk to the king. Uh, 
And he presents the condition of the, to the king of Persia about the condition of the walls of Jerusalem. And God graciously worked through the king and says, all right, Nehemiah, go back to Jerusalem and fix the problem. So before he leaves to go, he gets the uh, king. Uh, administrators, they think about details. And one of the details that he needed was he needed a couple documents from the king. He asked for a letter uh, giving him permission to travel through the kingdom. And also, he needed lumber to rebuild the walls, the, the gates, and the, the, the beams of the, of the city. Um, and so he needed lumber from the king's forest. So uh, Nehemiah gets that before he leaves. So he gets to Jerusalem, and it says that on three different nights, he went out and he surveyed the wall. He wanted to see the condition of the wall. He got the scope of uh, the work that needed to be done. So he was, in his mind, uh, creating a plan of what needed to, to occur. So then he informs uh, the residents of Jerusalem and the people nearby, hey, this is what's going on, and, and he tries to motivate them and pulls them together. And then they start working, and he assigns the work, and there's different groups of people that are assigned to work on different sections of the wall. And so, in addition to getting them working, uh, the people, there were people around Jerusalem that were enemies of the Jewish people, and they were threatening an attack. So Nehemiah not only had to work to coordinate this construction project, he had to deal with a possible attack, and he, he, provide, he had a, the people have a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. And also, uh, there were uh, plots to kill him and to discredit him, and he had to deal with all that in the background. But at the end of the day, they completed this wall in 52 days. And for those who study archaeology and, and, the, and the scope of that, it was quite an accomplishment to do what he did. And it required a tremendous amount of organization. And I just kind of give you the highlights from uh, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. But some things that weren't mentioned is, I mean, there's a lot of details. I mean, how do you feed the workers? You know, what about the tools that they need? Cleanup. Whenever you're in a construction project, you're always making a mess. So you got to get the stuff out of your road and, and put it somewhere, but you got to put it somewhere so you're not going to create a problem later on or interfere with anybody else's work. And of course, communications, that's what makes projects work better. And you got different people working next to each other, so they have to talk to each other so the sections of the wall would come together properly. And then there's a transporting of materials. They were, you know, needed lumber, they needed stone, they needed mortar, and all this stuff had to be coordinated. So that's the stuff that wasn't even mentioned. But anyway, Nehemiah... Uh, was a good example of someone who um, was an administrator. Now, in a church, I was trying to think of an example where there was a lot of coordination that's needed, and I was thinking of, of a church retreat. And if you're just an attender at the retreat, there's three things you got to do, and that's sign up, pay up, and show up. All right? Okay? Now, if you take the veil the veil and see what goes on behind the scenes starts off with picking a date that is an incredibly difficult thing when there's so many people okay what kind of budget do we have and that plays into what facility are we going to go to because different there's different costs and different expenses you know at different locations then once you pick a location, you've got to go through the nitty-gritty. Money makes the world go round, so you've got to sign the, the contract with all the details. And then somewhere along the line, you've got to pick a theme or a topic for the retreat. And 
finding a speaker or a teacher. Now, if you go outside of the church, you have to find a speaker. You probably need to start this planning project about a year in advance to get somebody. Lining up a worship team and leaders uh, uh, you know, for the retreat, you got to consider that. Communicating to the church, you have to give the church lead time because you want them to be able to attend, so they need to put it on their calendar and maybe save some money and prepare to go. What are you going to do during the weekend? So you've got to come up with a schedule and different activities. You're going to need help, so you've got to find and assign volunteers. Preparing materials, you know, is there a notebook involved for the, for the teaching, you know, song sheets, games, prizes, activities, all this stuff goes into preparing and planning. Um, and then you have to do the sign-ups and the room assignments. Well, sometimes that's not easy because sometimes you've got single people and they want to be by themselves and single people want to have roommates and then families and it just gets complicated and different price structures and there's just on and on the details. And then you collect money, that's sometimes pushing a rope, but, but anyway, all through all this you have to communicate with the church. And did I mention you have to keep communicating with the church? And oh, did I forget to say, you have to communicate with the church. And here's where it gets to be like herding cats, is you communicate with the church. So it's like herding cats, because it's amazing. No matter how much you talk about this, people say, well, where's the retreat? When's the retreat? How much does it cost? And it's, it is literally like herding cats. So as the day draws near, you're coordinating rides, you're packing up the stuff you need, you know, instruments, uh, you know, computers, soundboards, whatever. Um, there's the check-in. You know, it sounds like that should be an easy thing to do, but a lot of these uh, retreat centers are large, so where do you go? You know, what building do you show up? And then when you get there, where's your room? Where's the meeting facility? All these things, so providing maps and information, providing the finalized schedule, you know, making sure that the room that you're meeting is set up and broken down at the end, and then checking out. So all these details go into a simple thing as a retreat. Because, if, again, if you're just attending, this is all you have to do. Pay up, sign up, pay up, and show up. And you're thinking, why do you go through all these details? You know, administrators, I think, have a gift. They enjoy doing it. They, they're naturally organized. And they do it as a gift. They're not micromanagers. They're not trying to control anybody. But what the purpose is, if you're going to spend the time and effort on a retreat, you want people to get the most out of it. So think about it. You're going to a retreat. You just had a tough week at work. You just had a tough day, you know, and you get to drive there. And the last thing you need to do is run into all kinds of bumps, you know, at the, sign, at the signing in and getting your room assignment. So if an administrator does their job correctly, it is just a very seamless and easy process you know, for the people to come, and they can focus on the purpose of the retreat. Now, the people who um, have the gift of administration probably also have the gift of leadership, the gift of service, and also the gift of speaking because they need to communicate with each other. So there's a lot that goes into it, but also... As a church, we should do everything as well as we can. And there are people who are gifted to do that. And this verse from Colossians says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
We want to be a light on a hill. We want people to see that we know what we're doing and we can do it right. And we're doing everything for him. And, and doing things at the last minute, there's a lot of problems that develop. And if you can avoid it, I would encourage asking someone who is a good administrator to help you to get uh, the job done. The next gift and the final thing uh, is uh, teaching. And the fill in your blank is uh, it's to instruct others in the Bible in a logical, systematic way so as to communicate pertinent information for true understanding and growth. And that definition, again, is to instruct others in the Bible in a logical and systematic way so as to communicate pertinent information for true understanding and growth. A lot of times people like to teach, they like to do research, and they're, they're just eager to share it with people. And, and uh, teaching... Uh, it's very important. Uh, this gift is mentioned as a gift three different times in the Bible. It's mentioned in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. And the fact that it's repeated, unlike the other gifts that are typically mentioned maybe once, is this tells me that we need to take the Bible very seriously, and God wants us to have good teachers, good understanding of, God, of his word. And so that's why teaching is emphasized, I think, three times in the scriptures as a spiritual gift. Some examples of teaching. Uh, Peter, I mentioned him earlier uh, at Pentecost. Uh, he was talking about the Old Testament and some of the prophecies. Then he's talking about Jesus, and he put the two together, and, and the light went on, and 3,000 people understood his message, understood Jesus to be the Messiah, and they followed him. Another example, uh, even on a smaller scale, but nonetheless it's important, as we talked about Priscilla and Aquila during the influential women of the Bible study that we did. And Priscilla and Aquila talked to a man named Apollos. Now, Apollos was a good teacher and a speaker in his own right, but he didn't have the full picture. So Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and filled in the blanks that he had about who Jesus was. And then Apollos was able to go on and do better and greater things because Priscilla and Aquila taught him on a one-on-one what the truth was. And perhaps the best, no doubt the best teacher and example in the Bible is, is Jesus. And like other good teachers, Jesus used a variety of styles and techniques to communicate his message. And let me just highlight a few, and there's probably others, but uh, Jesus used parables, and parables are simply stories that convey truth. And parables are very effective because uh, they're easier to remember, and it also allows people to kind of mentally chew on it on their own to reach uh, the conclusion that uh, the teacher wanted them to. Jesus also did a direct method in Mark chapter 8. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He just laid it right out to them. Another technique that he used was comparison and contrast. Uh, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see several times where he says, it has been said, or it has been written, but I say unto you. So it has been written, but I say unto you. So Jesus was amplifying or explaining in greater detail what had been written. Another method, and a lot of teachers use this, is the Socratic method, which is named after Socrates. And basically, it's you just ask questions. And you do this, you ask questions to probe deeper, to probe, you know, what's the motive, what's a greater understanding. And some questions that Jesus put forth in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? 
It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, you can't. So the point is, why worry? In talking to the Pharisees about who the Messiah was, Jesus was referring to a passage that King David had written in the Psalms. And Jesus asked, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the point that Jesus was trying to make was that the Messiah was going to be someone more than just flesh and blood. And a question that Jesus put to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, and which is a question that we all have to answer. He says, but who do you say that I am? So by asking questions, you can get to the heart of the matter. Some other methods that Jesus used, confrontation. In Matthew 23, uh, there's the seven woes where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So in a very public setting, so everyone could hear him, he confronted the Pharisees and pulled and pointed out why they were wrong. Another way that teachers teach is by examples. You've heard things are taught and some things are caught. Jesus did things so that we could catch what he did, and probably the most powerful example uh, was right before the Last Supper where he was trying to tell his disciples that to be a servant is a very high mark in the kingdom of God. And Jesus demonstrated that by taking the time and effort to wash 12 pairs of feet. And also, he just, out and out, he could explain the scriptures. After he rose from the dead, he was walking along on the road to Emmaus. He, he comes across two of his followers, and he explains to them from the Old Testament the passages that talk about himself or talked about the Messiah. So these are all things that, uh, techniques that Jesus used, techniques that other um, teachers use. But teaching, the point of this gift is to bring people closer to God by clearly explaining biblical truth. So that's taking people who are non-believers and effectively communicating the message of the gospel so they can come to a relationship with Christ. And it's also taking people who already do know God to a deeper relationship with him. And people that can, uh, in the church that can use this gift, obviously, are our pastors, teachers, uh, small group leaders, just to name a few. People with this gift also have probably the gift of speaking, exhortation, uh, prophecy, which Luke talked about, uh, digging into the truth, and uh, a knowledge, a deeper understanding of what the scriptures say. So what's the conclusion of, of today's uh, message? We talked about giving, administration, and teaching. And I think just in summary, the first verse that Carl read from Romans chapter 12 is that we're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And let God use us whenever and however he chooses, regardless of what gifts we have or don't have. And one thing I just want to be clear is in this gift of the series we're doing about spiritual gifts is that we're hoping you can identify what gifts you have, but just because you don't have a gift, that's not an excuse to not do it. Like you may not say, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't have to give. Well, um, helping, serving, I mean, it's just, the key is we just all need to be available to God use us. Um, you don't have to be rich to be a generous person. That's another fill-in on your blank. And I just encourage you this week to sometimes just pick someone and just surprise them with a gift. You know, maybe you're in line at Mickey D's. Pay for the person behind you, you know, their meal. 
watch the expression on their face. We did this one time, we were up in uh, New Hampshire paying tolls on the turnpike. It was a, a dollar fee, and I gave the guy two dollars. I said, this is for the guy behind me. And as I was driving away, you could see the, you could see the confusion <laughs> that took place. Be a giver. You will have an impact. Next point is you don't have to have an MBA to organize events. You don't have to have an MBA to organize events, okay? If you see a need in the church and God prompts you to, to pull people together to do it, just run with it. That's the best thing to do, all right? Um, and maybe as far as organizing, the best thing you could do is just take a look at yourself. Am I too busy? What are my priorities? Because we all need to have margin in our life. We need to have downtime so we can pause and reflect and think and pray through things about what God would have us to do. So we need to be in a position where we can listen. So maybe we need to start organizing our own hearts and our own minds. And the last point is you don't have to have a seminary degree to explain important truths about God to someone. You don't need to have a seminary degree. Every believer should be able, in two to three minutes, be able to tell their story, what life was like before they came to Jesus, why and how they came to Jesus, and the difference that Jesus made in their life. And you should do this in a way that communicates to whoever you're talking to how they also can come to faith in Christ. You need to explain to them that it's not a something that you earn or work for, or it's not based on your income or your any kind of education or how good-looking or bad-looking you are. It is a gift. It is a gift that we receive by faith, and we need to explain that to people. And you don't need a seminary degree to do that. So everybody should have a two- to three-minute personal testimony that clearly and effectively communicates the gospel to whoever you're speaking with. So in the end, God's not so much interested in our abilities as he is in our availability, because he can supply the abilities. We just need to make ourselves available. And we need to be willing to give ourselves to him, to him and to his service at any time through the day as God's spirit leads us. And in closing, the last thing I'll say is just remember that little things can have big results if we give them to God and let him use us. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you.